When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There are two jobs in American politics that are unlike any others, President of the United States and mayors of big cities. Those are two jobs in which your constituents hold you responsible for everything, whether you have any power to do anything about it or not. And for big city mayors, the issues of crime, the issues of education, the quality of life are front and center 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Michael Nutter did that job for eight years in Philadelphia and has a lot to impart about uh, policing, about public education, and those issues that are very much in the forefront of our discussions today. I explored that with Mayor Nutter the other day when we sat down for this conversation. Mike Nutter, welcome. Uh, Welcome to, uh, to the Axe Files, but also to the Institute of Politics. Appreciate you bringing your the, the benefit of your experience here. <laughs> well, David, thank you very much. It's exciting to be here. So here's my question for you. I, yeah. As you know, I spent some time in Philadelphia politics. Yes, I know. Uh, and I roughly equate it with Chicago. Mm-hmm. Got your ethnic enclaves. You got your ward politics. You got your rough and tumble. Right. Uh, if, if no one's killed, it's all within the parameters <laughs> right. of what is, <laughs> right. what is uh, permissible. Right. And I, I, you, you strike me as a very, uh, a very genteel kind of guy. Uh, ha- I want to know how it was that you came to uh, politics, yeah. especially in Philadelphia, yeah, the well, city of brotherly love, which is and, an ironic name. And sisterly affection. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was a, a quite a, a little bit of a circuitous route. Um, no one in my family was involved in politics. There's no reason to think that I would be uh, involved in politics. But what did your um, folks do? My father was a plumber uh, and sometimes a pharmaceutical sales uh, person, um, and then you know intermittent periods of unemployment. Uh, my mom, on the other hand, uh, worked for Bell Telephone for 33 years, uh, and uh, you know really kind of kept things together uh, during uh, during many of those uh, tough times. But you know I. You know, St. Joe's Prep High School, a Jesuit High School in Philadelphia, University of Pennsylvania for college. I, so you didn't go to public schools in Philly. I did not. I went to. And, I was born and, and raised Catholic. And did your folks? Was it was it for religious reasons that you went to Catholic schools, or was it because they thought those were that was a better opportunity for you? No, I, I don't. I don't think it was the latter. I think you know we were we were Catholic, and you're going to Catholic school. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, I wasn't in the decision. Making a yes aspect of it show up right go to first grade um, well in that case you probably did well in Catholic school right I did very well in Catholic school <laughs> yes <laughs> I did a lot of uh, very strict yes. uh, very orderly um, 
But, uh, you know, as a lot of stories start, you know, I met someone who was involved uh, in politics um, after uh, coming out of college and, and working in a nightclub. And, and Yeah, well, let's stop right yeah. there, because I want to hear about your whole alter ego as Mixmaster <laughs> Mike. And you, 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 as we were talking before, you, yeah. you said that actually f- somehow was related to your yeah. political career well uh working in this club i'm 19 years old uh the mood and environment in philadelphia is such that uh the uh, black political empowerment movement is uh making gains people are running for office a couple other folks had run for mayor charlie bowser Mm -hmm. uh senator uh hardy williams and um bill gray uh, ran for Congress in 1976, lost to the incumbent, uh, Congressman Nix. And at this time, uh, these folks are having fundraisers and events and activities at this nightclub, uh, which my best friend's father owned, and he and I worked there. Uh, it was the first black-owned discotheque in Philadelphia. So uh, a lot of folks uh, were gathering there, and I'm meeting all these people at 19 uh, years old. And so kind of fast forward a little bit. How did you get the DJ's job? What, uh, uh, what qual- well, what, what- you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. So I did a lot of things at the club. The only thing anyone remembers is that from time to time I played music. We had house DJs. That was not me. Uh, what we did was the pre-show uh, to kind of kick the night off, and then the real DJs came in later on. But that's what people remember. Um, so was Mixmaster Mike your nickname because you were also a bouncer? Is that uh, I did a little bit of that. Uh, you know, carried <laughs> that's ice, a handy thing to know in politics uh, as well. Absolutely, yes. Well, you know, what I learned at the club, uh, interestingly enough, were many of the same skills that I would need in elective office. You know, I, I met a lot of people every week. I shook a lot of hands. Uh, I had to negotiate uh, from time to time because, you know, I'm not that big of a guy. And, you know, every now and then you have to put somebody out. So, you know, I had to increase my talking skills uh, and uh, counted money uh, and kept track of inventory. All the things I ended up doing as mayor. So, you know, so I meet all these people. I get intrigued by what they're doing and what's going on in the city. Um, 79 election comes. Uh, you know, it's all the, we're just coming out of the Frank Rizzo uh, era and so Frank Rizzo, I, the, the police chief turned mayor, turned mayor, very hardcore kind of guy. Uh, yeah, police community relations were horrible in Philadelphia at the time. And so uh, I met this city council member and asked him, you know, how do you how do you get involved in uh, in politics? This seems very interesting. Always loved history and you know followed Watergate when I was a teenager. That was going on when I was a kid. Um, one thing leads to another. I start volunteering in his office. The 83 election is coming, uh, and Mayor Green announces on Election Day in November of 1982 that he's not running for re-election. Wilson Good resigns the next day. He's the managing director, African-American, and to announce that he's running for mayor. I'm working with a city council member who's running for re-election. They asked me to manage his campaign. I said no, uh, because I think it's important to know what you don't know, and I didn't know anything about that. How old were you then? I was 25. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, one thing leads to another. I think you know uh, Saul Shore. Yes, uh, Saul Shore's great media consultant in the city of Philadelphia. Yeah, so uh, and now is the media consultant for uh, Priorities USA. There's yeah. the super PAC that's supporting uh, Hillary Clinton. Sure. So he convinced me that uh, no, you should do this. You're a young guy. You've got a future. Talk to the councilman. We want you to do it. Fine. So I did it, and uh, my guy wins uh, on election night out of 57 city council at-large candidates. Wilson Good wins the Democratic nomination, and I decide that night 
uh, that I want to uh, be involved in public This was service. 83. This is 1983. The same year that Harold Washington was elected exactly. mayor of Chicago. So it's right. a huge Earlier. historic year in the yeah. history of African-American politics in this country. No question. And, you know, Philly and Chicago being on the same election cycle, we're watching what's happening in Chicago. People are excited about that. Uh, clearly that has, you know, some amount of influence on the Philadelphia uh, race and uh, W. Wilson Good put together an incredible coalition of folks, black, white, Latino, Asian, uh, all across the city, and has this great victory. So, well, let me ask you about this uh, before mm-hmm. we move on, um, because I remember I was the city hall bureau chief for the Chicago Tribune in 1983 when, mm. when, uh, when Mayor Washington, uh, then Congressman Washington, was running for mayor, and I was a political writer covering the campaign. Wow. Uh, and, uh, the thing that I found so moving was this sense among, uh, African-American voters in the city, uh, of, um, full citizenship in the life of the city that, uh, you know, that, that Harold represented a, 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 a sea change that said, we are at the table, we are fully involved. Yeah in the community, and it was really an inspiring thing uh, to see. Was it the same in Philadelphia? Oh, very much so. And, I mean, the other part of the Wilson Good, W. Wilson Good uh, story is that, um, again, Philly, much like Chicago, and uh, all of us familiar with political agreements, uh, if you will, um, the black community said to then-candidate Bill Green, in order to get our support, you will have to agree to appoint an African-American as the managing director of the city. Now, we're a strong mayor form of government, right. certainly just like Chicago, but there's a managing director position that's in charge of all the, serv- the line service uh, departments. And uh, he uh, becomes the first African-American managing director. When Green announces that he's not running for mayor uh, the upcoming year, and Wilson uh, says, resigns his position and announces his candidacy, that was a clear symbol and sign that the work that had been done in the early 70s, the battles that were fought, the races that were lost, but then making that strategic decision to put this individual in that position, loved by the people, Wilson Good, you know, he's delivering services, he's out on trash trucks, he's with the workers. I mean, people really uh, appreciated his level of service. Uh, it, it it was that defining moment, uh, 82 going into 83, that this could happen this time. And uh, the Wilson Good story ended sort of tragically politically because of a raid by the police yeah. in the African-American community yeah. uh, that ended up in several buildings being uh, burned like down. Two and a half blocks. Lo- loss, yeah. loss of life yeah. and so on. Um, and uh, I guess Ed Rendell was the... Uh, was was the candidate who came along in two, in eighty uh, seven? Is that right? Well, Randell ran in eighty seven, but lost uh, to uh, to Wilson Good. The African American community stayed with oh, that's uh, right. Mayor yes. Good, uh, yeah. notwithstanding the tragedy of of uh, move. Uh, and and Randell ran he was re-elected. the next time. He ran in ninety one with the yeah, open seat because yeah. we have term limits. But that um, that that raid kind of. It was it was uh, it was devastating to his mayoralty. Um, but I have to say. Um, you know, kind of much like uh, in a different kind of way, President Carter, who's, you know, continued his work after uh, his service as president. Um, Mayor Good uh, runs an organization 
that provide support and services to children whose parents are incarcerated mm-hmm. uh, and uh, is quite loved. Still and still doing it. Still doing it. That's a great story. Uh, yeah. And Do you and have... Um, it's greatly appreciated in the city. I don't want to jump around because I want yeah. to get back to the narrative of your career, but... <laughs> As a former mayor, yeah. do you do you did you think at times back to that Wilson Good situation um, where he had to order police in yeah. and it ended up going badly? Uh, is this the sort of the nightmare that mayors live with on a daily basis? Oh, absolutely. And you know whether it's that situation or a shooting that's gone bad or you know just you know crime and violence in general. I mean, all of us uh, as as mayors know. Literally at any given moment, on any day in any city, something can go very, very wrong. Uh, And, uh, you know, everything ultimately ends up at the mayor's doorstep. Uh, And when you have police activity in particular, way before some of the more recent incidents of Ferguson and and New York and and other places, um, it's just really dangerous territory. Uh, for mayors, and you're always worried about uh, police and community relations. Uh, it 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 can really determine the direction of everything uh, else that you're doing. Uh, well, as long as we're into this subject, um, it also, you know, you have this dual issue. You have um, the issue of police community relations. Mm-hmm. And you have the issue of high crime rates in right. the African-American community. I know you right. were outspoken yeah. uh, on this issue. Um, we're experiencing this in Chicago right now know. Uh, where, the, um, you know, the tragic, tragic uh, 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 slaying of a, a young man and mm-hmm. other incidents yeah. uh, involving police right. uh, and also very high cr- rates of yeah. cr- gun crimes, violence right. in the uh, in the in the gang crimes in the, mm-hmm. in the African American community, right. uh, how do you reconcile the two? The need for strong policing in these communities, right. and the need for trust and cooperation between the community and right. police. It's it's really one of the toughest uh, issues to tackle. And uh, you know, as always, people always ask me, you know, what's the toughest thing? Well, there's no one thing. Um, it's uh, it's public safety and it's education. Uh, those are the toughest. Uh, issues to take on. And, um, you know, African Americans want safe communities just like everyone else. Uh, and they don't want crime and violence in the community. And when something goes wrong, they pick up the phone and call or grab their cell phone and call 911 like everyone else. And they want a professional, uh, capable uh, police officer of any color, as long as they have a blue uniform on, uh, to show up and deal with the situation. Everyone wants that. The challenge is uh, what happens uh, when the police arrive. And, you know, there are two parties who are involved in this engagement. There's the, you know, either the victims and their family or the perpetrator that you're trying to capture and, and the police. And how that exchange uh, moves forward, how that interaction goes uh, from the moment uh, the police show up uh, really determines how that uh, situation is going to play out. What's the mindset? Is there fear? And often there's fear on both sides. Um, you know, police officers have families. They want to go home. Uh, they don't want to be shot or maimed or, or hurt or, or killed. Um, citizens want to be treated with uh, dignity and respect, even in a criminal situation. I mean, you know, there's arresting somebody and then there's, you know, kicking the crap out of them, um, you know. Um, and so um, 
that's about training and, and, and profiling. About, I assume is part yeah. Of well, you know, I, I would get the question all the time. You know, why are there so many police in the African American community? Well, okay, let's look at the data. Let's look at the stats. I mean, I've got, you know, a ton of violence over here in the 22nd police district. And I've got, you know, people, you know, stealing, uh, you know, recycling bins, uh, you know, up in the 14th. Well, of course, I'm going to put more police where they're shooting and stabbing, killing uh, folks than, you know, getting cats out of trees. So, you know, it's um, it's a but tough this one. wasn't this was not always that well received you 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 had controversy within the african-american community though you were an african-american mayor yes because you took a very tough line on the need for aggressive policing absolutely um and i said that from the start as uh, when i was a candidate um that our violent crime rate was going up every other major city in america was going down um and you can't have a great city if people don't feel safe so I did take a very aggressive but uh, respectful uh, a position on the issue. I'm also the person, when I was a council member, that created the Police Advisory Commission um, to deal with uh, uh, complaints against police by an independent entity uh, that could truly get to the bottom of what's going on. So, I mean, I've seen both sides, and now I've been on both sides as a city council member and as a mayor. I've seen dead kids out in the street, and I've also had to go to hospitals and see dead police officers. So, I mean, I have a perspective here that says, you know, the community has to work together. The police need good citizens to give them information, and the citizens want respectful officers to show up to deal with uh, uh, crime. And th- and, th- those and, things and are related, aren't they? Because if there is a feeling among citizens that they're not going to be treated fairly or that uh, their, their, uh, their stories right. uh, are not going to be uh, treated uh, the way stories of other witnesses might be treated and right. so on, that that they bear off not yeah. cooperating uh, and they're, and against the intimidation yeah. of some of the well, elements then, in the community. Th- then you're in a downward spiral because the citizens are not going to trust the police and the police are not going to appreciate the citizens' perspective and then the citizens are mad with the police. I mean, there's no end in sight for that. And so when that relationship is broken, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort like daily, uh, every day, to try to repair it. There are things that you say. There are things that you do. It, you know, it, it's uh, there is a public aspect to it, but there's a lot of private conversations that need to take place. It doesn't get solved with a press release or a press conference, uh, you know, kind of a one-off uh, kind of thing. But you have to be committed uh, to it. And then, you know, what's the commissioner doing? And what's the, what are the deputies doing? What are the captains in the district uh, doing uh, and it's it's neighborhood by neighborhood, location by location, and it does take an enormous amount of time to repair uh, and recapture uh, a level of relationship. But you have to have it in order for your city to move forward. This is not a new issue. the The first one uh, in my one of my initial jobs uh, <laughs> as a kid reporter at a little community newspaper. Uh, the first column I ever wrote. Uh, I think I was 18 years old, was about uh, the battle in Chicago in 1973 between the leading African-American politician and Mayor Richard J. Daley, the first Mayor Daley, over uh, over the issue of police brutality. And, and the, the, the politician, Congressman Ralph Metcalf, former protege of Daley, was uh, demanding some sort of independent review board right. to... Uh, to oversee incidents or, or claims of police misconduct. 
Now we have cell phones. Everyone is a reporter. Everyone is a cameraman. A lot of the incidents that had been taken for granted over the over the years right. are now uh, a matter of public record. And, and that was the evidence. case here in Chicago in the Laquan right. McDonald case. There's this, been this big back and forth now about right. um, has has all of this attention to um, uh, misconduct or uh, uh, abuse of power uh, by police officers had the perverse effect of making police officers less willing to interact in the community. In Chicago, for example, there's been a right. tremendous increase in uh, uh, in violence since the McDonald uh, case. Right. Uh, do you believe that that is uh, happening? Is that a is there a I think they call it the Ferguson, Ferguson effect. effect. Yeah, I, I, I struggle with this uh, Ferguson effect. And, and at the end of the day, I mean, I, I don't think uh, that's a full explanation of what's going on. I find it hard to believe when push comes to shove uh, that a trained professional police officer sworn to take action uh, in certain situations would you know, turn a blind eye, look the other way, not engage because they're worried about um, if they know, were confronted with an act. <clears throat> but there are there are things in the margin. Do you make that stop? Uh, right. You know, do you go the ex- yeah. You know, I'm, I'm look. I'm very. As I said, I was writing about this 40 years ago, so mm-hmm. I feel very. Uh, I, I'm you know very attuned to this issue and concerned right. about it. And I, we've done we've done podcasts yeah. on it. But I do understand that it would be a natural human impulse on the part of police officers to be. Right. You want them to be more thoughtful about how they use their authority, sure. but, but not paralyzed. Right. And 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 I think it's a very it's a it's a it's tricky a situation. Yeah. And 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 again, having you know had to make some tough decisions on on some of these calls, you know, what I always say to the public is you know to the reporters, neither one of us were there. These things happen in a split second. You have to make a judgment. Is it a gun? Is it a phone? Is it something else? Uh, and, um, you know, there is this thought that, you know, it is better to be judged by 12 than carried by six. And so you have to make some split second decisions. Again, it's about training, it's about oversight, it's about the overall message that's being sent to the troops on a regular basis. And sure, individually, I'm sure that there are some officers who are worried, if I get engaged in whatever this is, or whatever I think it might be, am I the next one who's on the nightly news or on you know national television with some grainy video uh, and question marks about you know am I a racist am I insane am I you know just you know got a death wish or whatever the case may be but uh, I mean I find it hard to believe that that mindset pervades an entire police force um, there is something going on. we have a violence problem in America which we just need to acknowledge and then try to actually do something about um, crime is up in many cities, small, medium, and large, all it's across the country. It's down nationally. But down it's, nationally. But it's up in, uh, in Chicago is a great cities. example because uh, the crime is very concentrated sure. in, in inner city mm-hmm. uh, neighborhoods. Right. Same thing in Philadelphia. Crime went up, violent crime went up 15 as compared to 14. It's up year to date 16 compared to 15. We don't know why. And, it's the, and that is the case in a bunch of cities across the country. Um, and so there are a lot of theories out there. Um, I don't think anyone really knows because we haven't had enough time uh, to truly get to you know what the variables are. The police thing was so ripe that I got yeah. ahead of the story. But yeah. so you ran for the city council. 
uh, you were yeah. you were involved in business at the time? Or yeah, I was working, working with Xerox. For, I'd worked at Xerox uh, shortly after coming out of college. Stayed for 21 months, um, and when I realized that they were not on the verge of making me a senior vice president at <laughs> 24, uh, quit uh, and said, basically, I have no future here. Um, and <laughs> I just, you know, That's part of being 24. 24-year-olds. 20, yes. So in the meantime, uh, I'm still working at the nightclub. I was doing both. I was working at Xerox and still at the nightclub. Kept that job. And then... Um, I ran for city council in 1987, uh, lost, uh, I was running against an incumbent who was a part of the establishment and the machine and the whole thing. Came close, uh, pretty tough uh, battle. Uh, went back to the investment firm. And you ran as kind of a reform-oriented <clears throat> yes, candidate? Yes, yes, yeah. And that was my orientation. That was you know, my mentor, uh, the councilman that I worked for, who unfortunately passed away uh, about five months after the 1983 primary. but. Uh, we talked over the summer of 83, and the plan was that I would run for a district seat uh, in, uh, in 1987. He was an at-large member. Mm -hmm. And um, so I ran and uh, learned a lot of things uh, about myself and other people um, and announced on election. Not all good, huh? Uh, some were not good, yeah. yeah. Uh, but you learn a lot about yourself when you go through this process. And um, I announced on election night that I was going to run again. And then spent the next three or so years getting ready for that, changing some of the political landscape, became a... Were you married leader. at the time? I was not. Um, yeah, I was going to say, if you were married, you wouldn't have announced it the same night. I, I, <laughs> no. I guarantee you that. <laughs> yes, yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, and so then uh, ran in 1991 uh, on my way to being married, because um, uh, my wife, Lisa, and I decided that... Um, in the summer of 90 that we would get married in 91 and i said that's great as long as it's between the primary and the general um so. and that didn't scare her away huh? <laughs> no apparently not really we got married in july <laughs> uh -huh. so uh so i won and then 14 and a half years uh, in uh, in city council which i loved and enjoyed and did a whole bunch of stuff i was very and you were there at a very cons consequential time in the city. Yeah. Well, the city was on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, Ed Rendell had run in 87 and lost. I ran in city council race in 87, lost. And then he came back in 91. He won, I won. Uh, and uh, we started you know, down that path together. The city, I think a $250 million uh, budget deficit that year. Um, there were you know, all kinds of controversies about union contracts, et cetera, et cetera. But I learned a lot. Uh, through that period. It's a and great I, book, by the way, attention. called yeah. A Prayer for the City, for the City. by yeah, Buzz, Buzz Bissinger, yeah. uh, who ended up uh, being better known for Friday Night Lights. Yes. But uh, this is a great book for anyone who yeah. wants to know what actually managing a city is yeah. like in times yeah. of crisis. Yeah, right on the verge. And I think Ed Rendell, you know, by force of personality and enthusiasm and stick to and just, you know, plowed his way through it. And uh, and city council, I think our role to some extent was to be supportive and helpful uh, to the mayor. But I, I learned a lot of executive lessons just watching uh, that experience as we were going through it, which ultimately helped me a great deal uh, when the really big economic crisis hit uh, in 2008. Right. So I have to ask you, just because of my own personal history, you know yeah. that I was uh, that I worked on a couple of campaigns for yeah. John Street. I know, was, and he was uh, he was the city council president yeah. at the time that you uh, came to the council. Yeah, uh, has a much 
he has a different story than yours yeah. uh, and uh, came from a whole different place within the African-American community, but right. uh, uh, very much a, a, a community activist yeah. of a organizing Absolutely. nature. You, how, you, you guys, I get the sense that you guys never quite were uh, aligned. Uh, and Street is a, I, I really like him, you know, I, I want to confess, mm-hmm. but I always said, you know, John Street was a guy who ran for office, uh, believing that if you won by more than one percent, you'd wasted a lot of time and money. He wasn't. <laughs> he was not the most. Uh, he yeah. was, he's not the most uh, agreeable person. Yeah. Uh, in the so, world. So we came out of. Uh, he and I came out of different political camps. Uh, I was in the Bill Gray camp. Uh, he was in the kind of the Lucian, Lucian Blackwell. Lucian Blackwell and, was a uh, two congressmen yeah. from yeah. Philly. Powers yeah. within the African American yeah. community. Absolutely. So, but you know, he was about to become council president. And I had just won my city council seat, and so we had some conversations, reached a level of uh, understanding. Um, in the early years, I was very supportive uh, of you know the work that he was doing as city council president. As happens sometimes, um, you know, a deal here, a deal there, an agreement here, an agreement there, and I thought that some things had been, you know, violated uh, along the way. Uh, we ended up uh, in some very different positions uh, in the um, uh, late 90s. Uh, he then uh, ran for mayor in 99. Uh, I was for somebody else. Uh, he won, uh, Mayor Street won. Um, and, you know, throughout the course of his mayoralty, uh, we, we had some pretty big uh, some pretty big battles, um, and um, I just for for those who don't live in Philadelphia and don't know the history, it is fair to say that the difference between Michael Nutter and John Street is that they would have described this whole situation in different terms. I think, <laughs> but uh, no question about that. Yes. Um, so uh, you know, but you know, he served and served the city well, and a bunch of things happened, and then uh, and then I decided, and, and then there was the whole. 2003 uh, situation with the uh, with the election and the bug in the office and and I just yeah this is this is a lot of history people don't know but there was a a, a federal bug found in the mayor's office uh, four weeks before the 2003 uh, general election yeah and, uh, the, I, and full disclosure I was working for the mayor at the right. time and, real. and and I think it's important for me to say that you know the mayor was never charged right. uh, with anything there were no right. direct accusations or anything like that but uh, the city treasurer went to jail uh, which he just got out I think last year he got 10 years um, the mayor's top fundraiser and one of clearly one of his best friends died uh, was, under, was indicted under, uh, mm-hmm. but died before uh, going to trial and and other things happen, and other people uh, connected uh, to the administration or the mayor, fifteen to twenty or so indictments and people going to jail. So you say you say um, artfully that the mayor wasn't uh, was not indicted or you know personally implicated. Do you? Th- My view of him was that he really wasn't a, a money was not a motivating factor for John Street. No, uh, I don't think so either. So uh, do you think this stuff was going on around him uh, without his participation? Yeah, well, I mean, I think from the indictments or pleadings or people going to jail, I mean, clearly there were things going on around him. I, I do not believe that John Street uh, would 
knowingly engage in uh, in illegal uh, activity. I, I think that you know being mayor is a you know it's a huge job and stuff goes on and people use your name or or, or your cachet or whatever the case may be and then they do things uh, for their own benefit. Um, but I don't think he got anything out of any of these things, um, and which is why he was never charged with anything. Right. But, you know, but the stuff was happening, and it damaged uh, the city's reputation uh, and our public uh, view uh, badly. And quite frankly, that was one of a few reasons uh, that I really started seriously thinking about the prospect of running for mayor. I mean, I was, you know, in my late 40s, I've done 14 or so years, 13, whatever. And I started, you know, like to myself, what am, what, what do I want to do? And what do I want to do next? And what do I have to offer? It's not enough just to criticize uh, the, uh, the current uh, administration. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you think you're so smart, you should try. Uh, and uh, eventually I said, I'm going to go for it. And no one gave me any chance. Uh, you may or may not know the story. I, I took a poll. In May of 2006, I was still a member of city council. And my own poll that I paid for uh, basically indicated that no matter who ran, I would be fifth in a five-way race. People have said, well... My God, you're did, like a forerunner did, of Donald did, Trump. Did you fire the poster? Well, oh my goodness. <laughs> I said, no. He was the same guy who predicted I was going to win by 12 points, uh, which I did um, uh, at, the, uh, at the end. So, um, you know, it, it, this was not starting off as, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, right. positive-looking effort. Um, but I was committed uh, to the campaign uh, and to the city. Um, and ultimately, uh, the fact that I was the only person running who had city government experience, the other four people had Congress, State House, multimillionaire. Um, but I mean, I actually knew what I was talking about, uh, I think really helped. Mm-hmm. Now, thinking, we, we touched on the police issue. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned public education. Mm-hmm. Um, Talk about that challenge. Yeah. Because it seems to me these things are related. The oh, fact that, that these pockets of crime visit the inner city and uh, communities of yeah. poor people, communities of color, yeah. uh, is related to the opportunities that people get. And education is central to that. They're completely interrelated. And what I, they're, they're intertwined. Um, we find in Philadelphia that the overwhelming majority of people, for instance, who are arrested for violent crime uh, are also high school dropouts. Um, and again, I also want to be clear, just because you're a high school dropout does not mean uh, that you're going to ever commit any kind of crime, let alone a violent crime. But that's, those are the facts. Um, and the lack of opportunity, the lack of uh, uh, the, the skills to get a job and take care of yourself uh, is the flip side of, you know, we're usually not arresting people who are, you know, working and employed and taking care of themselves and have the skill set to, to move up. Uh, in life. And so um, education and public safety really are uh, tied together. In Philadelphia, different than Chicago, uh, the mayor is not directly in charge of education. The state took over uh, in 2001. Uh, They put in place a a school reform commission, five members, three appointed by the governor, two by the mayor. My position was, after every political person I ever talked to who told me when I became mayor, 
Don't get too deeply involved in education. You can't control it. You're not in charge of it. Uh, and ultimately, you get stuck with it, to which I responded. But they're my children in my city. And if I don't improve the educational system in Philadelphia, uh, we're not going to move up economically. So, I mean, I went against the grain on that. Um, I think it's one of the best things that I could do. And, you know, high school graduation rate went up. Did you get control back? No. The state is still technically in charge. But what I did get was a level of cooperation from those five members, all of whom I knew. Uh, we raised taxes uh, four or five years in a row, uh, put $400 million of new money uh, invested in education while the state was cutting about $300 million. Uh, at the same time. Uh, and uh, we saw some progress. And I can only imagine how much better things would have been if the state wasn't doing what it, what it was doing. We now have a Democratic governor who wants to invest uh, in education. But, you know, whether you're directly in charge or not, you know as well as I do, David, um, people believe that the mayor is in charge of everything. Right. And you have a responsibility for everything. So you might as well just step up uh, and do the best you can. And, and uh, trying to parse through, well, no, I'm not technically in charge, but nobody wants to hear that. Right. You have the office. You got the big thing. Do something. Um, and so I tried to provide that kind of leadership working with, you know, four different superintendents, 17 different SRC members over my time, three different governors um, and, uh, you know, and one mayor who was, you know, the solid, stable person for uh, for those eight years. So I think we, we made some think, progress. Do you think the Philadelphia schools uniformly provide as good an education as you got in your uh, in your in your schools when you were growing up? Uniformly, no. Um, we have some excellent uh, public schools uh, in Philadelphia. We have some that are okay, uh, and uh, unfortunately, we had to close a bunch uh, during my time. Again, a decision made by the school superintendent, who does not work for me, but I supported uh, that effort. Uh, we have district-managed schools. We have charter schools, which are a great option for many of our parents, but the charter school funding formula uh, is disadvantageous uh, to uh, the rest of the uh, school district. That's a state well, issue. Let me ask you something about charter schools. You know, I um, something that always interests me is self-selection. In other words, mm -hmm. parents who are motivated enough to want their kids to go <coughs> to a good school and seek out the charter school, mm -hmm. uh, in a sense, give that kid an edge before they ever get to the charter school because mm -hmm. the kid has parents who's who are involved in that kid's educational life. Right. Uh, I know you've been you've spoken to this mm -hmm. and the role that parenting plays in all of this. How do, how yeah. do we break this cycle right. uh, that has uh, consumed so many? Uh, because you've got parents who are, who are struggling in their own lives. Right. Uh, right. You know. Well, that's where I mean. You know, it it you know it's often used. Um, I don't say it that much as maybe as much as some other people. But, I mean, that's what community is about. That's what, you know, this concept of the village uh, is about. I mean, you know, uh, Ozzie and Harriet only existed on television, right? And so everyone's not going to have the perfect uh, childhood uh, 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 growing up. But, um, you know, if your parents aren't doing it, then maybe it's grandma or an aunt or the neighbor down the street or, or you know, that, that's where mentorship and sponsorship and boys and girls clubs and, and, and others uh, come into play. Um, I mean, we just can't say, well, you know, your parents aren't paying that close attention, so therefore, too bad. You're, you're totally right about that. But in a sense, what you describe, the village you describe... Yeah. Also, isn't always oh, uh, no, a fractured. reality in a right. lot of a lot of these communities. Yeah. I just yeah. 
um, I so think we're, we're all, all searching for ways to um, to yeah because you know I remember when uh, when President Obama was state senator Obama. Mm. He used to talk about going into schools in his state senate district, mm-hmm. and he'd go and see a first grader yeah. in a in an inner city school, right. and and he'd say that kid would have big dreams. I want to be a doctor. I want to be yeah. a lawyer. Maybe even president of the United States. Mm-hmm. But uh, and then he'd see seventh and eighth graders, right. and all of that was gone. gone. It was like the gone. the sense of possibility Took it away. wasn't there. W- what do we do about that? Well. Um, Early childhood, yeah, it's a combination of things. So, I mean, obviously we need to invest more in early childhood education, but I think that, I mean, we should be talking to our children about their futures, uh, if they can even understand the concept of, uh, you know, college. It doesn't really matter, but third grade, fourth grade. And the support services that you really have to wrap around middle school students um, is increasingly important. That's about you know place-based services that are in the school. Uh, it's principals and teachers. I mean, really focusing in on um, uh, that level of inspiration uh, with children and trying their best to draw those parents in, uh, no matter what else is going on uh, in uh, in their lives. Because even for parents who are struggling, it's not like they don't care what's going on with their kids, right? But left to their own devices, they may do something else. And so, um, you know, that... that What about the notion... uh, Now, this... There are fiscal reasons why this may be impossible. Uh, It was discussed in Chicago, uh, and again, it never happened because of money, Hmm. the notion of sanctuary schools, schools where kids come in uh, for breakfast... Hmm. They, and, and basically stay through dinner, and uh, they go to class, they have after-school programs, yeah. they've got tutoring, three good meals a day, mm-hmm. taken out of some of the, uh, the, the drama and right. violence on the streets during yeah. the at-risk hours of, you know, three yeah, to three six. To three to yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, would that be a, is that, is that a viable solution? Absolutely. Um, and we're, now in some of our schools in Philadelphia, I mean, kids are literally getting uh, at least two and a half, if not three uh, meals a day. It's, you know, they're definitely doing the breakfast. They're clearly getting to lunch. They might get a snack later in the afternoon, and we are literally providing uh, some dinner uh, for them. I, you know, I've often talked about this idea that, you know, uh, in school, uh, students, kids, um, you know, they have a roster. And, you know, your homeroom is at 15 or whatever time it is, and you got history at whatever time. The, the real issue is, and you, I mean, we both agreed on the general hours, that three to six, three to seven time period is deemed by most who have studied this some of the most dangerous time of the day for young people. And so what I've talked about is a roster for that time. Where are all those children? What are they doing? What rec center are they at? What library are they attending? What uh, uh, park program One of the things street, are they participating in? One thing Street fought in? very hard on was after-school programs. Yes, yes. Critically important um, uh, for not only their nurturing and their growth, but also in many instances uh, for their, their safety, safety and right. security, right? Uh, whether they might be a perpetrator one day or a victim uh, the other day. So, uh, I mean, again, those are the kinds of things that money should not stand in the way. But money does. It I does. Mean, well, you know, you look, know. we invest in the things that we care about. Uh, and if we're not investing in kids, uh, when all is said and done, I'm not sure what all the other investments are doing. So uh, what are you doing now? 
couple things. Um, you know, other I, than uh, uh, being a fellow at the University <laughs> of Chicago Institute of Politics, which absolutely, is well, a great expenditure of time. One of one of my number one things is to <laughs> be here at IOP. Um, every now and then, uh, you know, if I'm lucky that night, I get to sit on the other uh, the panel across from you, right on, on CNN. Uh, on CNN, uh, I'm. Um, I'm the inaugural David N. Dinkins Professor of Practice uh, in Urban and Public Policy at Columbia University. Another trailblazing mayor who was elected in the in the '80s. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I get to see him and work with him uh, from time to time. So I'm up at Columbia a lot in New Um, York. In New York, Uh, What Works Cities is a uh, one-year-old program now of the uh, funded by uh, Bloomberg uh, Philanthropies, uh, and I get to. I'm a senior fellow there. I get to work with mayors across the country uh, in cities of 100,000 uh, population to less than a million uh, and helping them with all kinds of initiatives, data and evidence-based uh, uh, driven uh, programs. So that keeps my hand in the in the mayor of city mm-hmm. world, the stuff that I really uh, love. I took on a uh, executive fellowship with uh, Drexel University uh, and their Institute of Strategic Leadership uh, back in, in Philadelphia, uh, which will start very soon. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, my passion and commitment to public safety. So um, this is volunteer work. I'm on the Homeland Security Advisory Council uh, with uh, Secretary Jay Johnson. Hey, man, you're killing me here. I thought you were going to tell me one or two things. I, didn't re- <laughs> no, I mean, jeez. Do you ever see young. your family? I got to stay busy. Yes. Um, well, yeah, my daughter's in school. I, and, uh, I, I know because I do sit a table uh, for, across the table from you that you're a... Uh, uh, an avid supporter of uh, Secretary Clinton. You've yeah. had a relationship with yeah. him long for a long time. Now we have this very unusual presidential race yeah. uh, w- with Donald Trump, who's shown some reach into <clears throat> some of these white working class a- areas right. that once were the preserve of Democrats. Pennsylvania yeah. is an interesting state. Oh, very. You know, James Carville said Pittsburgh yeah. and Philadelphia with Alabama stuck in between. Right. Uh, how do you how do you see uh, Pennsylvania yeah. unfurling in this presidential race? Because it's it, it may be a must win state for Donald Trump. Right. Um, well, you know, Pennsylvania usually is a must win for whoever's going to win, and um, I, I think uh, Pennsylvania will uh, we, we will be our usual purple selves. Uh, poll came out, I think, just the other day, showing the race very tight. Yes. Um, I think as the race goes on uh, into the fall, uh, um, Secretary Clinton uh, should um, uh, have a little bit of a lead. Uh, and then, as Pennsylvania usually does, when it gets right close to the election, it'll tighten back up uh, again. And uh, Pennsylvania will be very competitive uh, in terms of this uh, election cycle. But it is a bit of a microcosm of the United States of America with all the diversity of Pennsylvania, fifth or sixth largest state. I think we're the sixth now, uh, 11 uh, to 12 million people. But, you know, agriculture is the number one industry in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I have to remind Philadelphians about that. You know, we're all cosmopolitan and tall buildings and all that kind of stuff. But agriculture I thought it was cheesesteak. It's yeah. not cheesesteaks? Well, well, in Philadelphia, it's oh, cheesesteaks, yeah. <laughs> agriculture so- everywhere else. What what you know Hillary Clinton very very well. Pretty well. What? Why does she have this issue that seems to exist? This sort of yeah. trust issue. This. Yeah. Uh, uh, what is it uh, uh, that she does in public that you obviously don't see in private? Right. Uh, that makes it difficult for you. Yeah. Um, so I think there are a few things uh, going on. Um, part of it is, you know. 
Secretary Clinton, Hillary Clinton, has you know been on the public scene for a long period of time. There have been many ups, there have been many downs, um, and you know uh, I think in the best way I can characterize it, um, you know, fairly or unfairly, you know, fairly well beaten up uh, by uh, various uh, media and certainly the Republicans in general. I mean, they've kind of specialized in that. So I think, you know, the natural instinct is to, um, you know, almost kind of go within yourself, uh, lessen the surface area uh, for attack uh, and be very, very guarded uh, in, in that regard. Um, that's a challenge uh, for any elected official, but certainly one for higher office, I would say at a minimum at the mayoral level and up, mm-hmm. that people, you know, people want to know you. I mean, this whole idea that, you know, oh, I want to vote for someone who I'd love to have a go, uh, go and have a beer with, uh, whether I ever will or not. But that's, you know, of, of what people think. So, and she's, uh, I think, very... Uh, precise uh, in her language. She gives you a more detailed answer sometimes than maybe you would really like. And maybe you'd uh, want from someone you want to have a beer with. Right, right. Just, you know, kind of give me the answer and kind of get another beer, you know. So, um, you know, a little bit of that history of, you know, what time is it and you get the history of watchmaking uh, in America. So um, I, I think that's a, that's a part of it. Um, she's, she's, not, um, she's not a soundbite uh, you know, machine uh, in uh, in that way. In, in not to in any way denigrate you because I don't think this is, but you can identify with that a little bit as oh, well. Oh yeah, yeah. No, people said you know he's he's you know he's a wonk. He's this. He's not. You know, uh, and I I had to. I mean, I did. I had to learn a little bit over time to loosen up, lighten up a little bit, and I've I've shown uh, over my eight years. I think I. I develop the ability to use show the word, more of myself. You use the word guarded. No one has ever used that word relative to Donald Trump. No. Uh, it's whatever all else he is, he <laughs> just lets it he just no. lets, lets well, go. Well, because he can say whatever he says at 10 o'clock in the morning and then after maybe his folks tell him you know, maybe that wasn't the best and then there's a new thing at 12 and then there's something else at 2 and then I can clean it up at 6. All the while, you know, on, I've at been least in, on Twitter, <laughs> right? Yeah, Twitter, right? The the form of communication. But all the while, uh, having dominated every part of every news cycle in the course of the day, and so you can't even keep track of what's going on. But I think his supporters are such believers they don't care. Well, and in fact, that's one of the things that attracts them to him is that he right. doesn't sound like a politician. I, I ask this because it does create a a, a kind of worrisome dynamic for her in the yeah. sense that. He's way out there yeah. in a race that where authenticity is important, right. whether it's manufactured authenticity or real authenticity, right. uh, and she is not. Right. Uh, does that concern you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think now the challenge is, I mean, if you try to change up too much, then you have a different form of, of an authenticity problem because mm-hmm. what are you doing? We see that you're trying to, you know... So the, you can't be it's someone tough. that you're not. Yeah. But, I mean, could she lighten up a little bit? And yes, I think it would be a mistake to go down the same path that all of the other 16 or so Republicans went down, which is to try to engage him um, where where he fights. So my father used to take me to fights all the time, boxing matches. And one of the things you learn is never fight the other fighter's fight. If you're a slugger, you know, and you want to duke it out in the middle of the ring, don't get caught in the corner and, and vice versa. So, I mean, he's a different kind of character, totally unconventional. But at the end of the day, I mean, she's like a real adult um, uh, uh, person 
who has a certain level of you know dignity and respect and is running for the presidency of the United States of America. And I think that's a that's an area where she'll stay. He's still, I think, uh, with the talk show, reality show kind of mindset. And I think America has a has a real dilemma here to try to figure out, do you want someone who is, in fact, presidential, or do you want someone who is trying to become presidential, whatever that is? doesn't sound like you think it's that much of a dilemma. It's not a dilemma. We, <laughs> I want the president. <laughs> I'm following the line of your reasoning <laughs> right. here. It seems right. You seem to be making a point. I want the president person. Yeah. I want the yeah. person who understands the gravity and the intensity of this job. Dealing with friendly countries, dealing with unfriendly countries, dealing with, you know, international leaders. You've got codes. You've got stuff you have to do. And it's not all sound bites all day long. There are some real details that go with that. I mean, I can't even imagine what that job is. You've worked in the, I mean, I yeah. photos here. You worked in the White House. Just for my little job as mayor of the city. I mean, you have to know stuff. I don't know what he knows about running anything other than his own private business. Well, the United States of America is not your private business. Do you have any dealings with him when you in Philly? Once. Um, it was uh, when uh, the casino license, uh, one of the casino licenses mm-hmm. was up, and I met him uh, once. Uh, you know, the handshake, and I looked at him. I just became totally distracted by the whole hair uh, situation because uh, I kept trying to well, figure out how you, was the that front could part be, you and I, that attached could be, to the that second part. That could be envy. <laughs> yeah, so. There's no envy of that guy's <laughs> hair. Anyway, dude. listen. Michael Nutter, it's going to be a fascinating. Uh, yeah. It's going to be a fascinating six months, Absolutely. and I'm sure I'll see a lot of you over at yeah. over at CNN. But no thank question. you so much for being here, for thank being you. at the IOP, and for yeah. your service. Thank you very much. I look forward to coming back. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of the Axe Files, visit cnn.com/podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.